My guest today is Jeff Snipes. This man inspired me to my core. His story is profound. From, and I quote, a starburst of awakening to doing the hard work of deconstructing his identity, he was able to move away from his patterns and into his spirit. As a result, he has had a profound impact on the lives of youth, educators, and parents. And what I'm most struck by is that after doing the Hoffman process, Jeff left his corporate life, he built a team, and developed an entire educational system that at its core is teaching how to unlock and integrate the whole self. And you know what his motivation was? The question, why don't we start teaching the concepts of the whole self, like we do at the Hoffman process, much, much earlier? His journey is amazing, and where he landed is amazing. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Sharon. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm uh, very eager to chat with you about your journey and your story. You know, I've been reflecting on your path, and I think it would be interesting to start with the turning point that you experienced. It sounded like you were on track in your corporate career, and then something happened that had you experience a turning point. So can you paint that picture for us? For sure. Thank you. Uh, at the time, I'd say when all of this kind of confluence of uh, seeking started to emerge for me, I was uh, CEO of a corporate education company that I had started. And the job was successful, but it took me out on the road most of the time. We had hundreds of Fortune 500 clients, and I spent most of my time traveling. And I loved the work. It was energizing. We were helping design large-scale enterprise leadership solutions for large corporations, so assessment and training and coaching and development. And, uh, you know, the core service that we were providing was to help unlock human potential at a very large scale. So how do you train thousands of people in, in unlocking leadership skills? And so while I was I was really energized by the type of work we were doing in the world, it also left me pretty one-dimensional. Um, my wife and three kids were at home and I wasn't. I was out in the world building and growing and doing. And, you know, the time it takes to really have a healthy relationship and to be a good father and to have friends and uh, have health and balance in your life, I, I put all that on the side for the first, you know, 10, 15 years of my career. And I just went and put my head down and just went after it. So by my early 40s, you know, all of that was kind of coming to an intersection where it just wasn't working. I couldn't do the career at the sacrifice of everything else in my life that I wanted, including, you know, just spiritual 
pursuit, you know, the time and space to go inside and to really reflect and ask bigger questions in my life. So early 40s, I started really going out and looking for a different way of being in the world. And the Hoffman process was absolutely seminal in that, you know, in that seeking process, a period of two or three years, or I did almost every retreat I could find, the Hoffman process was uh, was transformational for me. And so I'd, I'd say it really did represent a, a, the inflection point where I made a decision to change and go a different way. And how did you, when you were doing these retreats and starting to shift where your priorities were, were you still working? How did you balance that, that, that transition? Were you juggling both worlds or did you put one on pause? How, how did that happen? At the time, I was trying to juggle it all. I was running the business and trying to schedule retreats and trying to step back. I had been the CEO since founding a company in 96 and we hired a, a woman who was going to take on the president job. So we put her in charge of all operational responsibilities. And that gave me a little bit more space. So about 2008 to 2010, I had two years where I created like a day a week where I would do nothing but the spiritual seeking, the reading and the reflection and the journaling. And then I'd take a a three-day weekend kind of once a month, every four to six weeks to go and go to the mountains or go visit some luminary, you know, teacher. Uh, So I really just kind of forced it into the system and then ultimately ended up selling the company and stepping into a board role a few years after that where the space really opened up for me. So a couple questions come to mind. One is, I do hear this, you know, I can't say every time, but I do hear, hey, for the first 10, 15 years of my life, I put everything on hold and then I reached this point where I reassessed and I reprioritized. But if you were to talk to young people today, who want to be successful, but also want to have this more inner world experience, what advice would you have for them? Well, you know, I think the, so I have, you know, three kids, almost all adults now, and the oldest one is out of college and in the workplace. And in speaking with him and his friends, I think they already kind of have this message. I mean, this generation today they have different work-life balance. They, they want to have a different style of living and um, being in the world. So a lot of them already intuitively have changed their perspective on what they want their life to be like. I think the hardest part is if you're, if you're a man who identifies success as your career, which I think is common when you're in your 20s and even 30s and 40s, I would really challenge them to expand that definition of success and really think now. You don't you don't realize how one-dimensional you are at the time. You think you're juggling it all. And it really isn't until you get to be your late 40s or 50s that you realize how focused you were. So I think just find older men uh, that can be mentors if you're a young man. Or, you know, I think and just find older people in general that you trust and really ask them for be open to the guidance of the wisdom that people are going to give you that have maybe already been down that path before. That us old people have. Yeah, young people, pay attention to us. That's what we're saying. (laughs) It's interesting hearing that from seeing it from your kids and their cohort. They kind of did learn from us. They saw that we didn't balance it right. And we had to have this kind of turning point. And they're kind of, whether we said it or not, it seems that they've got the wisdom and they're starting uh, their career with that that knowledge. I think that the awakening that's happened in the last three or four years in particular is just this awareness of, you know, uh, unintended consequences and unawareness of consequences, you know, the racial awakening and the gender, gender identity awakening and, the, you know, all the political polarization in the world today. A lot of it is, 
you know, if you're just locked in your lane and you see the world from one perspective, if you don't make space and time to have the connections and to expand your thinking, you are going to be very, you know, very narrow in your view of the world. And I think that's what's causing the problems. And so I, th- I do think the kids today are creating more openness and more space and seeing things from different perspectives than, than we did. I think it's critical, but you just, you didn't have the time to do that if you were working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Right. And then, you know, you had this uh, devoted time in 2008 to 2010, and it was really kind of like you said, it was very defined. I had a day in the week where I did this. I had a three-day weekend. Um, You know, there were several years. Today, you're not in that, what would you call it, confluence of seeking moment. You're kind of in the maintenance. And so how does spirituality still live in your day-to-day life? I say spirituality was there in my childhood and in my youth, and it was a really important theme. And I was quite, you know, introspective and thoughtful. And I had, I grew up in a religious household. And so I think that the seeds were planted early. And I'd say that, you know, you get busy as an adult and you kind of tuck that stuff away and it's, it's not gone. It's just maybe quiet. And then I had this, you know, this starburst of awakening in my early forties where I just couldn't get enough. And I became, you know, I was like binging on one book, one retreat, one podcast, one after the other. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get satiated. So I'd say that there was this incredible reawakening and hunger and thirst for it that at this point now, call it 12 years after that is really settled into a much, I'd say more integrated experience. Like I think that, you know, after awakening, there's this um, this spiritualized ego where you try in a lot of personas that you think are spiritual. So I, you know, went vegetarian. I I tried yoga for a year. You know, I really committed to a deep meditation practice. You know, a couple times a day, half an hour to an hour at a time. It became a you know a persona, an identity that I was wearing. That um, I wanted to now just take all my achievement orientation and my accomplishment energy and just focus it on you know, how spiritual can I be? And it wasn't so much that I became, you know what I mean? It was like the same driving motivation. And instead of being successful in business, I wanted to be successful in being spiritual. And so it took a while, I think, to kind of work through that and burn through that and integrate it and kind of get to a place where it felt more settled and more quiet and more integrated and more about just being and less seeking. So today I'd say that I still am quite committed to, you know, each morning I I take walks in nature up in the woods with my dog. It's kind of my morning, you know, sanctuary. And I do still have a meditation practice. And I do a lot of reading that I just read for pleasure. But it feels more to me like I'm watching it happen less than trying to achieve a goal of of breaking through. It's It feels more like I'm really, truly just um, enjoying the experience of whatever emerges and, and not trying so hard for the outcome that I wanted. It makes a ton of self. And, and to put it in Hoffman terminology, it feels so much like how we talk about left road, right road. You know, on the left road, it was the pattern, let's call it the accomplishment pattern that had you meditating for two hours, not one hour. And after two hours, three hours. And, you know, that kind of, like you said, spiritual persona, spiritual ego. Whereas on the right road, it was just being. Sometimes you meditated, sometimes you walked, sometimes you just looked into the eyes of your dog. Either way, in all of those, you felt like you were being. Your spirit was there. You were quiet, whatever it was. And so it's very left road, right road. I I think this discernment you made of identifying that and taking the time and space that is necessary to 
kind of break that down. It, it takes time and space, and then you land in this place that feels, to use your word, very integrated. No, I think that's right. I think my mind was so hungry for all these spiritual concepts. And the more and more I read, the more spiritual concepts I had. You know, I had an identity that was really well constructed around, you know, my sense of uh, separate self or false self or, you know, who am I in the world? And it, it had a lot of beliefs that were really woven in there pretty tightly. You know, you have to find a way to grab one of those threads and just gently pull until the knot comes undone. And even, you know, this, this core belief of, well, the way things happen is you have a goal. And even if your goal is to be awake or to be enlightened or to be spiritually present, the goal itself becomes something that your belief system then wants to figure out how to achieve. And really understanding that, well, that belief of the only way you get there is by having a goal. Uh, you know, I kind of had to deconstruct that core belief, which is you can't even have that goal because that kept me attached to the achievement addiction, you know? And so um, that's an example for me of you know, to really deconstruct the identity and let go and try and be present. You have to be willing to kill some sacred cows and let go of beliefs that have made you what you thought who you were. Were there any that surprised you in how relentless some of these sacred cows were? Like you tried and tried and tried, but it was really one of the more difficult ones to deconstruct? You know, I think that uh, one of my root beliefs has always been about persistence and that ultimately my strength was in persistence. And that translates into where you just, you don't quit trying, you know, you just keep working. And that's a pretty tough one to let go of if that's what I've always relied on. And to realize that the persistence itself, you know, required an effort with an intention that was in the way of letting go and letting whatever was, you know, allowing what was already there just to be there. And so I think even just the simplicity of persistence ultimately is in the way of just, just being. That for me was a tough one. Well, it again brings me back to the left road, right road, because, you know, you said it's expressed in we keep trying, we don't quit. And there is a way on the left road, if the pattern is persistence, we're not going to pay attention to the health of our body. We're not going to pay attention to what our family members need. We're not going to pay attention to all kinds of things that are important for us to pay attention because the pattern of persistence has us continuing to try. Whereas on the right road, you can still maybe not quit certain things, but you're going to be, like you said, more whole, more integrated. So if the health of your body is coming up, you may allow yourself to actually pause or quit or postpone or redirect because that's your way of being in that moment. Right road. Yeah. I think it's having an awareness of, well, who, who is it that's trying to be persistent? I use that question a lot whenever I notice a belief. You say, well, that's my ego wanting to be persistent. You know, that's persistent around the self-image or persistent around the way I want my life to look like or the way I want, you know, the way I wish something was. And the more I can just let go and let trust that something else is holding it and it's going to unfold through me as opposed to me being the one who needs to be persistent, that's a release. And you just trust that spirit will emerge the way it wants to and you can just enjoy it. But that's a hard, that was a hard one to let go of. I'm also struck by just imagining this life that you had, this, this company that you built, your travel and your busyness going from this busyness, which may have equaled, you know, I am valuable or I'm important to this life of slow paced of space of expansion. How was that transformation for you? 
You know, it's interesting to reflect on it that way. I'd say that at first, there's enormous fear, you know, that if I'm not busy, I'm not relevant. You know, in the world, the world is fast moving. If you don't keep up with the news and the trends and the companies and the lingo and the technology and the tools, you know, it doesn't take very long that you're out of the system and it's, you know, your network goes stale and the people that used to call you don't. And so I'd say the, the first phase is there's just a lot of fear. Because if you're not really busy and active and in the game, it, there's a real fear that you're just going to become irrelevant and not be capable and not know, you know, how to get things done. And today with technology, it's fast, you know, using different tools and systems and processes. And then I'd say there's a second phase after that, which is if you can let go of that fear. For me, there's a bit of a paradox between the natural energy that emerges when you're in flow and alive with something and excited about something. If your mission or your purpose is joy-based or, you know, in pursuit of purpose or spirit-based, I still have a lot of things I do, but I do it with a lightness. I'm not attached to, to it in nearly the same way. So I think there's once you let go of this fear, there's still plenty to be done. And then it's a day-by-day, you know, just feeling into it. Does this feel true to me in this moment that this is what I want to do or feel like, but I don't have the same stress or, uh, you know, sense of attachment to the outcome of what I'm doing? There's a lightness to it. So I'm curious, what, what, what was birthed from that moment where you were in flow or you were coming from this place of joy and spirit? Once you moved away from the busyness, what emerged for you? Well, I tell you, uh, Hoffman was a spectacular catalyst for me. And the, uh, the really deep experiences that you have in that week you know, I, I get the concept of the quadrinity and I can you can read the book, but it's so different when you have the deep experiences and you really just hold on through the resistance and the discomfort and go into the real deep work that, that they do. You just get to so many different levels. It's like holding a yoga pose, you know, way longer than you ever thought you could. And it just keeps opening and opening and opening and opening. And um, so for me, I was able to uh, ultimately uh, sell my business in 2012 and I took some time off and I went. You know, on my, I used to like going up to the mountains and backpacking in solitude for a week and asking these sorts of questions. What I came away really inspired of was, well, you know, all this stuff that we were in Hoffman, why isn't that taught earlier? This way of being in the world where you're filled with love and self-awareness and a sense of purpose, you know, why isn't that what we're teaching? Because I had a background in leadership and education, I started working in schools and going around and meeting with educators and asking this question. I'm looking at the curriculum of what was established, and it looks like this was mainly designed in the late 1890s, you know, around why we we study what we do today. And I couldn't really find a whole self curriculum that was really authentically, you know, quadrinity-based education. And so uh, I really, you know, got excited about this idea of creating an educational program around the quadrinity, you know. And so I launched a a nonprofit called Millennium.org. This is about two or three years after selling the company where I'd had some time to really reflect and do some research and think about it. And I found a great partner and together he and I started a school in San Francisco called the Millennium School. And it's a middle school uh, with 108 students this year. And it's a basically a laboratory school. We call it an innovation lab. And we've designed from scratch kind of a quadrinity-based educational program. Um, the curriculum, the competencies, the courses, the experience, everything is designed around a whole self framework. 
A few years after that, we were invited to go and share our methods with other schools and other teachers. And so we launched a sister program where we now have several hundred educators that we train in how to teach using uh, a whole self method and how to be in a community of practice with each other in a sustained circle design where you practice these whole self practices. So you know, Hoffman wasn't just transformative to me personally. It planted a seed that evolved into an idea or concept for education for young students and adolescents, which turned into a teacher training program, which, you know, continues to emerge and each year new ideas come out of it. So I'm still very alive and very active in the world, but it's it's with a, a purpose of how do you teach wholeness and how do you create a framework for spiritual development as a central part of the educational program. Wow. No, seriously, I'm I'm somewhat speechless at um, just knowing the impact. I mean, Bob Hoffman's not with us, but uh, I think this got to him in his grave because to think that you had a powerful experience and like you said, it planted the seeds. And next thing you know, it is, wait a minute, why aren't we teaching this earlier? Why do we have to wait till our, I mean, I'm a Hoffman teacher. Sometimes we get kids, I shouldn't say kids, young adults in their twenties. And I'm always thinking, are they ready for this? You know? And yet the immediate reverse thought is, wow, I wish I did this in my twenties, but why even wait till the twenties? Let's just have a foundation of this. So we don't have to unlearn as much. So you did this process. You were deeply impacted. You now started working with young people, created a school, brought on teachers. So now teachers are embodying this whole person, right? This, this foundation of spirituality as they teach and impact their kids. Talk about um, a ripple into our future and into our world. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I, I get goosebumps and I, I got goosebumps. And the idea that, well, what if we could invent an educational method grounded in teaching this and it's the center of the educational focus, you know. Uh, so we have 20 educators on staff at, at the school. All of them are invited to go to Hoffman. Uh, I think the vast majority of them have now spent a week doing the process, and they come back completely transformed. We pay for professional development. All of our educators practice some contemplative practice, you know, a daily mindfulness practice. They go on retreats. They've been you know, down to Costa Rica and places where they do one week journeys and experiment. And, you know, all of it is in the spirit of if you can access your whole self as an adult, then you can be the catalyst for the students. It's like inviting parents to reflect on how they now are parenting in a different way. The formal programming, I can talk about formal programming of, you know, the activities and the courses and the curriculum, all that. But our theory of change is that the educator themselves is the catalyst, the same way that parents are the catalyst for the children. You create a certain environment, you know, where the kids swim in certain ways of being and values and, and questions. So you have to do a lot of translating. You know, we, we don't just, you can't just pop kids into the direct techniques of the adult Hoffman method, but you can translate the building blocks and the questions and the curiosity and the exploration into an age-appropriate way for students. And man, I got to tell you, they get it. They, they totally get it. I really believe that it's the natural state for most people in a healthy, safe environment, that it's the way they want to be, and that they actually have to contort themselves to conform to a traditional institutional model of education that is the exact opposite of this natural way of being. I think it's harder for them to institutionalize themselves into sitting in rows and memorizing facts 
that they really don't care about, that's just not their natural curiosity or motivation. And we simply just kept asking, well, what is the natural state and how do we create an environment where the kids just come alive with their own curiosity? And then they pretty much led the way for us. Oh, I have so many thoughts going in my head, but the other thing that I'm I'm realizing that's an impact here is is keeping educators in education because we know that it is really difficult to keep good people who are genuinely drawn to this industry of impacting youth. They go into the traditional place and they're usually burned out pretty quickly. And this feels like this must really address that with your team of educators. Yeah, I mean we're incredibly privileged and fortunate in our particular design. It's not something that's easily transferable. We haven't yet figured out how to make it accessible to everyone, but it's, it is very hard to watch. I mean, I think most of the educators we've worked with, as I mentioned, you know, educators from public schools, private schools, charter schools, all interested in these techniques. Most of them enter education because they're inspired to work with children and help children thrive. And unfortunately, our current system just doesn't allow that, uh, the lack of training and support and the number of kids in classrooms and the amount of time they have to spend on so many things that aren't relevant to instruction. It's its just awful. And the you know pandemic just turned the heat up, the, the burnout, the stress, the behavioral issues. I have enormous empathy and I'm such a fan of these educators that find a way to stay in the saddle and committed against all odds. It's disheartening. And so... Um, your theory of change is that the educator is the catalyst. And so if I think about a kid's, you know, who are the most influential players in, in the development of a child, for sure it's the teachers and educators. It's also the parents. Does your curriculum expand into parenting? Uh, it does. So the, the signature program that we use as kind of a centerpiece of the design of the school is a small cohort method. We call it Forum, F-O-R-U-M, and it's um, it was inspired. I'm in a group called YPO, and that's why I first learned Forum. But lots of organizations use circle methods. And so it's a peer-to-peer coaching circle uh, with about 10 people in it. And the students, all of our students are placed into a forum when they join in sixth grade. And they stay in that forum for three years. So these are mixed gender, but same grade for three years. And that forum meets daily on advisory topics. And then on Wednesdays, they spend two hours together. They go super deep. And that's where we introduce all of the Hoffman-like practices, the visualization techniques and the, you know, the mind, body, heart, and spirit protocols and how to really explore what's going on in different parts of themselves and how to bring it into the circle and share with each other. So that technique is the technique that we've now taken out to educators. And in the last year, getting back to your question, we've started doing that with parents. And so all of our parents then are encouraged to join a forum practice. And so they then spend three years with other parents in a circle where we introduce all of the Hoffman-esque whole self techniques and methods. Every month we introduce a new technique and then they practice for a couple of hours with each other. We're hopeful, last year we piloted it, it went really well. We're hopeful that what it does is it creates a consistent environment where not only are the kids getting the language and the tools and the methods at school, but they're getting them at home. And the parents are benefiting because their well-being is increasing as their consciousness is increasing. And so, so far we're seeing a ripple effect, as you just said. Yeah. No, I, I think this is one of the biggest challenges we face in education is, A, how do we get our teachers to embody this? Um, and you've addressed that. And then 
be how do we how do we ensure that the influential players in these kids' lives are all embodying and all on the same page, all consistent. And um, it feels like this uh, forum practice for the parents is exactly how to do that. So this, this, these kids are getting this reinforced by all their key influencers, all their, all their key people, all the grownups. Yeah, I think that, you know, so systematically, I think that's where you have to be willing to redesign the system, you know, take out a blank piece of paper and ask, you know, with your mission aligned teammates, ask yourself, what are we going to put in the center? What's at the middle of this? And then let's design a system around our, our mission. So for example, in a traditional school system, they have a, a very rigid system around academics and 35 kids in a class, 50 minute periods, everybody learns the same subjects. We all move from one class to the next. And so that's such a rigid system. You, you really it's hard to create the environment and experiences we want to create with that system. In contrast, take out a blank piece of paper in the middle of it, draw this whole self. And the spirit, the mind, the heart, and the body is the whole self. And so the mission of the school is to unlock and integrate the whole self. Well, okay, well, what expands from, you toss a stone into that pool and watch the ripples spread out from there. What are the competencies and well there are spiritual competencies there are heart competencies around compassion and understanding and emotional intelligence there are mental capacities around curiosity and seeing from multiple perspectives and, and there are you know physical capacities around translating alignment with uh, intentions and integrity and actions and greater service in the world and so your competency set of what you're trying to teach then expands from there your schedule of your week of what do you want kids spending time in expands from there. You, you know, the role of the educator is now, you know, that one educator has those kids for three years and their role is less about delivering content and it's much more about being a coach or a mentor to those kids. So they meet with them every day. The kids create their own goals. They write their own evaluations and the evaluations and goals around whole self-development, you know. And so you have to be willing to change the entire system around a, a new paradigm. You know, we had to let go of the flip phone to create a new paradigm for the iPhone. And then the iPhone had to have everything had to work, the app exchange and the, you know, everything had to work together. And so this is a paradigm shift to a whole different approach to education. So let me ask you, um, hearing you talk about this, I'm hearing this skill of, uh, I can't quite name it, but clearly building curriculum, taking complex issues and building and, and kind of breaking them down into step by step by step uh, kind of bricks as you're laying down the foundation. Is this from what you did beforehand in your corporate world? Yeah, yes, for sure. So the gift of my corporate career was 20 years designing leadership development systems for Fortune 500 organizations. And if you think about leadership as a system, you know, it's, for example, uh, you know, the talent that comes into the organization, how do you train and develop and promote the talent? How do you reward it? Um, what are the competencies involved? What are the, you know, the leadership's role of role modeling? You look at assessments, you look at training, you look at feedback, all of these are aspects of uh, a talent development system. You can't just drop in, for example, a course on, you know, how to think strategically or how to be innovative and expect the system to change because it's not enough by itself. So we were very good at large-scale enterprise-wide systems, developing leadership programs for them that really moved culture and really moved behavior. 
The scary part of that was that we got very, very good at it. And so whatever behavior the leadership wanted to produce, so for example, if it was just scale at any cost or growth at any cost or globalization at any cost, we could create an entire culture that was kind of like aligned with that intention. What I took from it was a real deep awareness of, you know, if you know what the levers are and you know how to design an integral system, you can shape culture, you can shape beliefs, you know, and so we hope that we're doing what we're doing from a, as conscious and authentic a perspective as possible around seeking the greater good. But we are very intentionally creating a system that is designed, you know, we think of it as there's four parts to our school model. There's the, the what, which is the competencies and the, you know, the curriculum that we're teaching, the how, which are all these different experiences. So everything's project-based where the kids take on a six-week social impact project out in the world and they work in a team with three students and they spend six weeks working on this, whether it's an environmental project or a homeless project or you know, whatever their, their topic is. And at the end of six weeks, they present this project. So it's experiential and the kids are innovating and designing and then one day a week on Wednesdays, the kids doing apprenticeships, they're out in the world working, and then they have to come back and talk about what they learned and how does it align with our values and what leadership skills did they notice. And, you know, we do a lot of camping and nature-based programs. So the experiences is number two, which is, well, how are you learning these things? Because you're not going to learn them memorizing them in, a, in your head. It has to be in a, a full body experience. The third is the who, and that's the role of the educator. So the educator needs to have had a Hoffman experience and a contemplative practice, you know, show up in a way where they're put in a coaching environment with the kids and they're meeting with their 10 kids every day and they're doing one-on-one, -on -one, you know, mentoring and how are things going at home and how are things going with your friends. And so the role of the educator is completely different. So there's the what, the how, the who, and then the fourth thing is the culture of the overall community. So that's the parents. How does the whole community hold the same values around what's important? So their grades and their assessment and everything is tied to this whole stuff. So parents have to be on board if they're expecting a traditional, you know, achievement-oriented education model. They're they're not going to be happy. So that system, I think, is what allows us to create the experience that we we're going for. You know what I'm really moved by is seeing that you you had this awareness, like, oh wow, I can identify the levers. I can then design a system, which means I can shape culture. I can literally shape culture and beliefs. Oh, wow. Let me pause. That is huge. Now, some people reach that realization or awakening and leave because it's quite overwhelming or leave because they're not in agreement with where it's headed. But you, you use these skills to really create culture that is going to have quite the impact on our world. I'm really moved by by what you've done with your the 20 years or 15 years, however many years you you did that, you really just took it and are going to have a huge impact on our world as a result. Very big deal. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I appreciate the kind words. I will say right now it's in reality, it's messy. You know, it's a small school and it's a limited number of kids and families. I hope that we're impacting them in the way that I'm describing. I'm sure that you could have plenty of people talk about the things that, you know, that aren't working and that we're still working on. So maybe one day it becomes something that really makes a difference in some significant number. Right now, it's, you know, the parable of the child walking along the beach and the beach is covered with starfish and the child's picking them up and throwing them back into the ocean so they can live. 
and survive. And the friend says, you know, what are you doing? You'll never make a big enough difference to all of these starfish. And the child pauses and says, well, I, I made a difference for that one. And so we live very much in the moment at the school of just, you know, one student at a time, one interaction at a time. There's a part of me that has a hope that maybe this, this, you know, we attract the right people to come help us and that we invite others to come. By the way, I have to acknowledge a huge movement of other people in this space pursuing similar aims. I'm going to Columbia University to speak in a couple of weeks, and it's uh, the Collaborative for Spirituality and Education, and it's run out of Columbia University. I mean, so, you know, that's hundreds of schools all coming together to ask these questions about how do we get spirituality back into education? There's a group called the Learning for Wellbeing Foundation I've been a part of out of Amsterdam that's running a global initiative to try and promote this exact same paradigm, four-quadrant, whole-self well-being inserted back into the core of education. So there are some amazing organizations doing this work. We've been sponsored by the Fetzer Institute, who's funded our, our launch, and we couldn't have done this without them. And they're very dedicated to how do we get spirituality back into education. So. Um, I'd say we're a small wave of a, of a movement of aligned people that are mission-oriented that really think that the time has come for us to take a step back and reimagine what the purpose of education should be and how do we really want to be developing the next generation of students and the path we're on is, you know, it's not a good path and we need to, we need to reimagine a different way. We sure do. Amen. And your timing is, I know, I don't, I think it'll be more than one starfish to use your metaphor, but also your timing. Whew. This is, it's, it's right now. This is when we need this. So I, um, I'm noticing the time and I, so I want to bring this to a, a close with one last question, but first of all, thank you for sharing. And I'm really, like I said, just inspired by the realization you had of, wow, this is quite powerful what I am doing. How do I use this skill for good? That's, that's really staying with me. But I want to just close with, with one last question. So the Hoffman process, as you mentioned, was it seems that it was quite pivotal. And I'm curious if you remember, was there actually a moment or a memory that was that pivotal moment or the magical moment for you during the process? You know there uh, there are so many to so many to choose from. I will tell you that one that has really stuck with me for a long time, and it's been you know twelve, thirteen years now since I did the process. There's an opportunity in the process where we invited to go out in nature and to just go out and walk and just be in nature and notice whatever you noticed. And some exercise leading up to that was quite intense. And um, we'd been doing so much work throughout the week that I remember going for a walk in nature and having this overwhelming awareness that my mind was free of story and drama and voices, maybe for the first time in my life. It was just so quiet. And I was so present. And I was just overwhelmed with the awe of nature. It was like I was seeing it for the first time, you know. It was like I could see the trees and the leaves and the bark and the, the beetles and the grass and uh, the sun coming through the leaves and the, just the sense of how perfect it was and how intelligent it was and how it was always here all the time working in this intelligent cosmic harmony. And I just felt an overwhelming sense of love for that moment. And it was, it was transcendent for me to really realize if we just stop the thinking and stop the 
the internal conflict and just be in that moment. It's just, I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. I was just overwhelmed with the beauty of this adventure and the journey and committed that I want to stay like this. This is the way I want to be. So that was when I really made a commitment to myself that whatever it took, I'm going to find a way that I can sustain this way of being because this is, this is the way I want to live. And look at all that's happened in the last 13 years. Quite something. Yeah, no. And, and it wasn't planned. I could have ne- you could have never in a million years said this was something I had on my, on my agenda ever in my life. It was not a plan. It was just watching, surrendering and watching what comes up and just say yes. Yeah, you, you hit this point earlier where it wasn't a goal. It wasn't from the pattern of accomplishment or persistence. It was just from paying attention and saying yes. What a beautiful way to leave us and what an inspirational story. <sighs> Thank you, Jeff. What a lovely story. and Thank you for sharing with us. Well, you're most welcome. I am grateful for the invitation. It's just, you never know what words are going to come out of your own mouth sometimes. So it's just hearing, having the questions and the space to kind of reflect and be here with you and think about it all. It's a, it's a gift to me. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm sure on behalf of myself and all the listeners, we thank you for your truth and for the work you're doing in the world. And um, I hope to see you in the community. Wonderful. Well, I hope to run into you as well. Thank you again. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.